I'm preaching a continued message, if you will, from the book of Luke, chapter number 16. I began the message last week, and the name of it was called Christianity's Most Hated Doctrine. Christianity's Most Hated Doctrine. Now, I don't preach on this very often, but when I do, I try to really bring the truth of God's Word home. And the most hated doctrine of Christianity is the idea of hell. And whether you realize it or not, there have been momentous changes in our culture. And from a time when the majority of people living in America believed that there was a literal heaven and a literal hell, we've now moved to a time in history when, honestly, there is probably a great, great majority of the people do not believe in the existence of hell. Many of them do not believe in the existence of heaven. They believe that when life is over, it's just over. It just ends. You just die the end of existence, and that's it. Now, in our Bible, we've, we see here the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's, to me, it's very important that you understand that these words were spoken by Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ who demonstrated greater love than any human being who ever lived, who went to the cross for our sins because he loved us so much. And that Jesus Christ, who was the gentlest, kindest, most gracious person who ever lived on this earth, that that one is the one who taught us the most about the doctrine of hell, believe it or not. So stand with me as we read God's Word today. I'm reading Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died. And he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments. And he seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in your lifetime received thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all of this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, and neither can they pass to us that would come from thence or from there. Thank you, and you may be seated. And so here is the account of two men. One of them is a rich man, and the other is described as a poor man, as a beggar. The name of the rich man is not given, but the name of the beggar is given. His name is Lazarus. The rich man is described there in verse number 19 as being clothed in purple, which was the most expensive form of clothing 
that one could wear in those days because the dyes for purple garments had to be brought in from a place called Tyre, which is now in Lebanon. They took a shellfish that grew in that area. They would crush it, remove the dye from it, dye the fabric, and so it was very, very costly. You didn't wear purple unless you were very, very well off. And then it says he fared sumptuously, this rich man, meaning he lived high. He had everything that this world could offer to a man of means in those days. And then there's the poor man, Lazarus. He's a beggar. He is helpless because it says he is laid at the gate of this rich man. So I picture a gate around a big estate. And the, this man, Lazarus, this poor handicapped man is laid at his gate. And the Bible says that he had sores. He's full of sores. And so I assume those sores come from the fact that he's, he's bedridden. He's, he can't move. And so he is in a pitiful shape. And he begs for his living. We don't see beggars much in our culture today. But in the ancient world, they were very common. And in fact, in many countries of the world that I visited, you see beggars on every corner. It's a very common thing. So this man begged for his living, and the Bible says that he ate of the scraps which fell from the rich man's table. The, the idea, he lived out of the, he basically had to eat out of the garbage can of this rich man. So it's a terrible, terrible situation that we have here. And then the scene changes. They both die, as all of us will die. And their bodies now are on the earth, keep in mind. Their bodies have not moved. They're here on the earth. And it says about the rich man that he was buried. Only the rich in that day, the very prosperous, could be buried, could afford a funeral and a tomb and all that. And many people that were poor were simply burned up. Their bodies were, we would say, cremated. So, again, a very pitiful situation in terms of their bodies, but both of their bodies, I, have, I, I want you to notice, are here on earth. But then we see the scene, and the scene shifts to heaven, and Lazarus, this poor man, is now in Abraham's bosom. Well, what is Abraham's bosom? Well, remember, the Bible is a Jewish book. Even the New Testament is a Jewish book. And Abraham's bosom was a Hebrewism, we call it, a Jewish phrase. The idea of, of Abraham's bosom was to be near to Abraham, to be in the place where Abraham was. And Abraham has been dead for a couple of thousand years now, but this rich man is where Abraham is. He is in Abraham's proximity, we would say. And the, the rich man is in hell. He is in torments, the Bible describes it. And it says in verse 23, in hell, he lifted up his eyes. And when he lifted up his eyes, he could see into the other world, the world where Abraham was and where Lazarus is. And the rich man looks into that world, and he notices that there's a great gulf. There's a great abyss between him and that next world. He cannot ever cross over. His state is eternally fixed. And so 
I want to remind you, though, that the rich man is not in hell because he was rich, because rich people go to heaven and rich people go to hell. The poor man is not in heaven because he's poor, because poor people go to heaven and poor people go to hell. In other words, your economic state has nothing to do with your eternal destiny. And we have here the most full description of hell in the Bible. Verse 23 It's a place where people are tormented. It's uncomfortable to a high degree. And in verse 24, it's a place where they thirst. There's an immense thirst. The body's senses still work, even though the body is not there. The the, the soulish part of us and spirit still thirsts. There is some form that the soul assumes in eternity because Abraham is recognizable. Lazarus is recognizable. So there's some way that they're recognizable. There's some human form that people assume in that world. And, of course, there's memory. Verse number 25, this rich man remembers what happened on earth. My opinion is that probably memory is the worst part of hell. The regrets the sins that we wish we had not committed, the things of which we're ashamed, those will haunt us, and they'll haunt us through eternity. Now, I remind you again, too, that the Bible says, and if you want to look up the verse, it's Matthew 25 and verse 41, that hell was not made for human beings, that hell was made for the devil and his angels, for Satan himself. And those are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. But this has become Christianity's most hated doctrine, rejected by the majority of people. I'll bet if you go to work tomorrow, and I'll bet if you ask the people in your office, if you work in a normal uh, secular setting, and you can get the people to open up and be honest with you, I'll bet you if you said, do you believe in the existence of a literal hell? I'd be willing to bet. Well, preachers are not supposed to bet, but... I believe that you will find out that most of the people who work with you, they don't, believe, they don't take this seriously. They think this is metaphorical, allegorical. It's some sort of a moral example. But, but I don't think that the most of them would ever believe that the Bible's picture here is a literal picture. Many of them, as I already said, don't, don't even believe in the existence of a literal heaven. They think that life is over when you die. But Jesus Christ, who had the greatest integrity of of anyone who ever walked on this earth, taught this as a literal thing. There was nothing in his teaching here that says this is metaphorical, allegorical, imaginary. Uh Uh-uh. He taught it as a fact. Now, the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures also, of course, taught that. They talked about a place called Sheol. And in the New Testament, the same word Uh, is Hades, but they have the idea of this place that we commonly call hell. So as I studied this over the last couple of weeks, I wondered, why is it that people so reject this doctrine? Even people that say they believe other parts of the Bible will say they reject this. And I think the reason is they think it's too harsh, that it's, um, I was going to say overcooked, but I might not ought to use that term that 
hell is too harsh a punishment for, uh, for any human being. That nobody, no matter, I mean, if you were Hitler, you shouldn't have to be punished through all of eternity. And so people just write it off. It's just overdone. It's too much. It's over the top. But as I pondered it, I think I figured out why people in modern-day contemporary America reject the teaching of the Bible on the subject of hell. And I'll give you three quick points. Number one, people reject the Bible's teaching on hell because modern man has decided to determine his own truth. Modern man has decided, I'm going to be the authority about what I believe about eternity, and I'm going to determine my own destiny by what I choose to believe. Turn with me. Keep your finger there in Luke, but turn with me back to the book of Judges in your Old Testament. I'm taking a moment I wish I didn't have to take to get you to turn in your Bible, but I want you to see this with your own eyes. If in the book of Judges, the last chapter, that'd be chapter number what is it, chapter 21, the last chapter of the book of Judges, if there ever was a description of contemporary modern American society, boy, this is it right here. The book of Judges, chapter 21 and verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Underline that phrase in your Bible. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. In other words, people said, I will determine what is right and what is wrong. I am the authority on moral issues in my life. I will determine what is right and wrong and good and bad. And when everybody does that, every man determined that, it says here, when every man does that, then you have anarchy. You just plain have anarchy. Everybody can't decide on his own and have his own personal view of what is, what is moral, what is immoral, what is right, and what is wrong. Every man in those days did that which was right in his own eyes meaning he rejected the teaching of the Scripture, the Word of God. Boy, does that not describe America this morning? Every man in America is, it, we're even teaching it. We teach people, you ought to just determine your own thinking on these matters. Back about 25 years ago or so, there was a man named Robert Bella. Robert Bella wrote a best-selling book. It was a, it was a, widely acclaimed book of that day called Habits of the Heart. Some of you probably read it. And in the book, Robert Bella said, quote, I'm quoting his book, Americans believe an individual should arrive at his or her religious beliefs independent of any church or synagogue. The most fundamental belief in American culture today is that moral truth is relative to individual consciousness. Our culture has no problem today with a God of love who supports us no matter what we believe or how we live. But 
people in America strongly object to the idea of a God who would punish people for their sincerely held beliefs, even if their beliefs are mistaken. Boy, what a profound statement this secular writer made. Our culture has no problem with a God of love who will support us no matter what we believe or what we do. But people strongly object to the idea of a God who would punish people for their sincerely held beliefs. And people would would rather hold those beliefs, even if they're wrong, than submit to the authority of God. We call that postmodernism in the world of philosophy, that there's no absolute truth. There's no one truth that fits all, all people, that truth is personal, that you determine your own truth in life. You, you determine what is moral for you. And so I could sit down and talk with another individual, and I'd say, well, for me, that's wrong. And that individual says, well, I really don't see anything wrong with that. It's not wrong for me. And so you can see you have an absolute knocking of the heads, if you will, about what is right and what is wrong. And when you multiply that by everybody in society, you have chaos, you have anarchy. And that's where we are today. Because if truth is personal, then morals are relative. I have my opinion of right and wrong. You have your opinion of right and wrong. Neither of us are exactly right. Neither of us are exactly wrong. If truth is personal, morals are relative, and there are no moral absolute values. And that is the belief today, I'm afraid, of a, of a majority of people in America. C.S. Lewis, you're more familiar with him than you are Robert Bella. And I quote C.S. Lewis. Quote, the major difference in the ancient world and the modern world is the way we view reality. The ancients believed there existed a transcendent, that's a big word meaning superior overall. The ancients believed there existed a superior moral order outside of ourselves, built into the very fabric of the universe itself. They believed if you violated God's moral law, the consequences would be just as serious as if you violated God's physical law by placing your hand in a fire or drinking poison, end of quote. In other words, that moral laws had just as much authority as do physical laws. You wouldn't put your hand in a fire. You wouldn't drink poison because you know the law of cause and effect. You know that it's how it's going to affect you. And so they believed you wouldn't go out and do what was morally wrong, knowing it was morally wrong, because they felt, felt like there was going to be retribution for that. There would be justice for that. But you see, we've lost that. And we've been told by the educators and the philosophers and the media that you have the right and don't let anybody challenge you or take it away from you. You have the right to determine right and wrong for yourself. You don't have to listen to any preacher or any priest or any religious leader or moral leader of any kind. You determine in your own heart what is right and wrong. 
And so they reject that transcendent, superior moral order that taught us absolute moral values like the Ten Commandments, for example. And rather than taking God's word for what awaits them after death, Americans today have largely rejected God's truth in favor of their own opinion. So whatever I think about it, that's probably what it is, what's right. That's where we are. And so naturally, they read a passage like Luke chapter 16, and boy, that's hard reading. And that's frightening. That's, that's tough reading there. And so you say, I don't like that. Boy, I don't like that place. I sure wouldn't want to go there. I, I just don't believe that. And if I don't believe it, that's my truth. If I don't believe it, it's so. This is the world we live in today. My favorite book in my library is called God's Plan with Men by T.T. T. Martin, who was a great old preacher out from Mississippi and later Colorado, lived in the late 1800s, very prominent Southern Baptist preacher that day. And from the introduction, I read to you this. I timed it. It takes me two minutes to read it, two and a half minutes. I don't want you to miss a word of it. Will you please hear me on this today? With all the sincerity of my soul, I want you, every single person on television, wherever you may be, oh, hear me. The bare possibility that there is a hell and a heaven, that the soul will never cease to exist, that Jesus is the real and only Savior are enough to cause every sincere doubter to give the most earnest consideration to any evidence bearing on these questions and to undertake the most careful investigation of anything that promises to lead to certainty. The most that those who oppose Christianity have been able to do is to cast doubt. If there is no heaven or hell, no future existence, no one will ever find out before or after death, and there would be little, if anything, gained if they could find it out. But if there is a heaven and there is a hell, and Jesus is the Savior of the world, then there is everything to be gained by finding it out and everything to be lost by neglecting to find it out now and in this life. So important are the issues. You should be willing to thoroughly investigate the subject month after month and year after year. Surely, your eternal destiny and the destiny of those over whom you have influence are enough to cause you to give earnest attention to do whatever it takes. Your heart attitude is so important when considering your eternal destiny. The Scripture says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Now, but many people reason to escape God, not to find Him. Many people make a superficial search or engage in a light conversation about religion. However, the promises are not to them, but to those who are diligent. If we would use the light that we have, 
that God has given us and follow it up, then we shall know. We have no right to expect anything from God if we approach Him in a half-hearted and 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 indifferent way. Think with me. 100 years from now, you will not be among the living on the earth, but your soul will be alive. And the Bible unmistakably teaches the immortality of the human soul. And so where will you be? There are only two options. God has given you a will, and he's given you the power of choice. I've read that I don't know how many times. I even stuck it in the front of a Bible to read before I preach. So that when I stand here and I preach to you, I want you to understand the eternal consequences, how weighty they are. Your soul's more valuable than anything. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Why would you be willing to spend every waking moment of your life to make sure of your eternal destiny? Americans reject hell because they all decide, they've decided, not all, but many people have decided to determine their own truth. And the second thing is that in America, we've adopted a very low view of justice, a very low view of justice, which means that divine justice is out of the question now. John Broadus is one of our Baptist fathers, great, great theologian. I quote John Broadus, the trouble is not with the Bible teaching as to hell, but with the modern inadequate conception of evil and sin, and with many the almost lost sense of justice and stern moral indignation against wrong. Hear that last sentence. With many we have lost the almost we have almost lost the sense of justice and stern moral indignation against wrong. And we see it every day. We see it in our society. We have more compassion for the perpetrator in many cases than we do for the victim. And we have prosecutors across the country today that we're not going to charge people for those offenses, especially minor offenses. And so you know what's happening. Crime is exploding, particularly in our larger cities. But even in our local areas, we see an increase in it. We see criminals turn loose. California just recently turned loose several thousand convicted criminals. Just, we don't have room for them anymore. Turned them loose. A low view of justice. Justice not being served. A softness on crime is what we call it. Now, as Christians, where do we get our view of justice? Our view of justice is drawn from the character of God himself. What is it that makes right, right, wrong, wrong, good, good, bad, bad? It's the character of Almighty God, Jehovah God. 
And we know that God is a God of love. Our great verse from the book of John, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. There's hell. John 3, 16 has hell in it. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but what? Have everlasting life, have eternal life in heaven. And that great verse begins telling me that God is a God of love. Jesus presents him as our heavenly father, the benevolent, loving father who cares for his children. Yes, God is a God of love, but he's not just a God of love. He's a God of other things as well. And the most often mentioned characteristic of God in the Bible, do you know what it is? It's his holiness. The Bible teaches that God is holy more than it teaches that he's anything else. And what does holy mean? Holy means, actually, the word is the same word for other. God is holy. We would say God is other. And what do we mean when we say he's other? That's a strange way to say something, isn't it? But we mean by that that he's distinct, that you can't compare God to anything or anyone Really, he is absolutely in a class by himself. There's nobody that you can compare, nothing you can compare to Almighty God. He's distinct. And that makes him so morally pure. He is untainted by the evil and the sin of this world. And so when we begin to think about right and wrong as Christians, we think about it from the standpoint Uh, would God approve of this? God's character becomes the standard of justice and of righteousness and of goodness in the earth. And then we also know that God is just. Isaiah 45 says that Abraham prayed to Almighty God in Genesis 18. He said, will the judge of all the earth, that's God's title, the judge of all the earth, will the judge of all the earth do right? And, of course, we know that the judge of the earth will do right. God cannot do wrong. He is morally impeccable in every way, superior in every way to our ability to even comprehend him. Well, then when you take God's justice then and compare it to the idea of hell, everybody then can't go to the same place and get the same punishment because everybody's been different. And so the Bible teaches the idea of degrees of punishment. I touched on this, but I want to revisit it this week. Luke chapter number 10. Go back there with me, if you will. And twice our Lord says, he teaches us the concept that there will, everybody in hell doesn't get the same punishment, and everybody in heaven doesn't get the same reward. There's not going to be any socialism in the next world. (laughs) (laughs) We may get it here. We're not going to get it over there, I'll tell you that. And in Luke chapter 10, notice what the Lord said. And you may want to mark this in your Bible because 99 out of 100 people, even Christians in America, don't know this. There will be degrees of punishment in hell. In Luke chapter 10, and uh, we'll go back to verse 12. I say unto you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Now, Jesus had done all these miracles in this city here, Chorazim and Bethsaida, the area around Galilee. 
He had healed people. He had raised the dead. He had fed the multitudes. People had seen his miracles by the, by the scores, and yet they rejected him. They did not believe in him. And so he said, if Sodom that experienced God's judgment back there in the book of Genesis, but they didn't have the opportunity to see Jesus operating and ministering among them. So Jesus said, it's going to be more tolerable for them than it is for you who've seen my miracles. More tolerable, that is a degree a lesser degree of punishment for those people who had never had the opportunity than for the people who had opportunity and threw it away over and over and over. And then he says it again here. He says it in verse 14. It shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than it will be for you, Capernaum, which you are exalted up to heaven in your own mind, but you will be thrust down to hell. And Jesus said, no, ever, so hell is going to be just punishment. Don't get it in your mind. God is a torturer. God is some fiend, and that everybody's thrown into some common hell for all of eternity. Oh, no, no. Our punishment will be a just punishment, or the punishment of people in hell will be a just punishment. It'll be based upon the number of sins they committed. So if you're just living in no, with no consideration for sin, stop, halt, come, slow down. The number of sins, the type of sins, all sin is not the same. There was capital punishment for murder. There was an offering of eternal dove for some other sin. No. If all sin were the same, it would receive the same punishment. No, the Bible doesn't teach all sin is the same. It teaches the opposite of that. The type of sin, the number of sin, and the opportunity that people had. And boy, if you live in the Bible Belt of South Carolina, have you had the opportunity? And the third thing I would say to you is we have a very casual view of sin and evil. The first point, modern man seeks to determine his own truth. No moral absolutes. So people that think like that reject hell. People who have a low view of justice, they reject hell. And people who have a casual view of sin and evil. To many people in our society, to many Christians, to many professing evangelicals, Sin is no longer a serious matter. It's no longer exceedingly sinful. It's just, yeah, that's wrong. I know. I know. And we don't take it very seriously. You know the history of evil pretty well. Sin and evil was born when Satan rebelled against God back in the book of Genesis. And then you know the story of God created Adam and Eve, put them in the garden. Satan came and deceived them talk them into disobeying God's command. And he's still doing that, by the way, today with us. But the, I want you to think about the nature of evil. The nature of evil is that evil always begets evil. It grows. It expands. 
It never stops. The very nature of evil is to is to expand. I remember when my mother made uh, bread and she made biscuits. And she put in it, what? She put a little pinch of yeast, a little package of yeast, and she, and she would knead the dough, knead, K-N-E-A-D, different world. Anybody know what it is to knead the dough? doesn't mean she kneaded it. It means she was working it with her hands, working the yeast into it. And then she'd make the rolls and squeeze them out, and she'd put them in the pan. Oh, my soul, how they started smelling. I can smell it 50 years later. She'd put a cloth over the top of it and set it on the front of the oven and turn the heat on, just gentle warm, warmth. And then those rolls would start filling up that pan. That yeast, that leaven, which was Christ's analogy for, for that, that yeast spread through the whole of those rolls. And I mean, in about an hour, she'd pull them out of there. And, mm, makes as near to heaven as you'll ever get in this life <laughs> to eat my mother's rolls. And I've watched that yeast permeate every single part of those rolls. Now, to, to stay out of trouble when a preacher gives an illustration like that, he also needs to talk about his wife's pies. <laughs> Need to balance this up a little bit here, huh? But Jesus used leaven, yeast, we would call it, as the example of evil, how it spreads through the whole lump, through the dough. In fact, even in Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 21, you might want to write it down. It says that evil pursues sinners. It pictures evil as a person running after people, trying to take them captive, if you will. And so you see, the Bible takes sin seriously, and God takes sin seriously. And we who love the Lord and believe the Word, we take sin seriously. God has judged evil before universally a time or two or three. He judged evil at the fall when Adam and Eve lost paradise forever for all of us. He judged Sodom and Gomorrah for their sins. He finally judged the whole world at the flood, and he described it as a time when every imagination and thought of the intents of people's hearts was evil continually. All people thought about was evil. That concerns us today, doesn't it? When we see a world where everything that people think about seems to be pornographic and sensual and, 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 and evil, if you will, violent. But listen to me carefully. The greatest judgment on evil didn't, didn't fall on a human being. The greatest judgment of evil was when the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth through the miracle, the virgin birth, and became a man and then hung on a cross. And Almighty God took all the sins of all of humanity and He placed them on the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for six lonely hours, Jesus Christ struggled on that cross, dying for your sin, my sin, 
the sins of all of humanity for all of time. He became our substitute. He paid a price to redeem us. He ransomed us, the Bible says. Listen to this verse from Isaiah. He was wounded for our, for my transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement or punishment of my sin was upon him. And with his stripes, his punishment, I can be saved. That's grace. That's love. And you know what? The cross gives you a second chance. The cross gives you a second chance. You can be forgiven. You can walk out of this church today as pure and clean as the newborn snowflake. You can walk out of here today clean before God because Jesus has already paid your price. He's taken your punishment. He's made a way, a way of escape. Nobody ever needs to go to hell. And when people, decide, when people go to hell, it's because they chose to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't do it. Stand to your feet with me, if you will.